0: You know, we're living in a society. But they want to deliver vast amounts of information over the internet. It's, it's a series of tools. We're supposed
1: to act in a civilized way. Allison, can you explain what internet is? Welcome. Hello, hello, you guys. Welcome back to Indirect Message. I have a question for you. Have you ever found yourself in a truly mind-numbingly frustrating situation? Like a grocery store line that didn't seem to move. Or maybe a comment on Facebook that cost you a few IQ points. Have you ever had life throw a little too much at you at once, and keeping everything together felt like a daily miracle? I think most of us have been there, and perhaps are there. Nietzsche, the king of the nihilists, famously wrote that to live is to suffer. To the Buddhists, the inevitability of suffering is the first of the noble truths. Throughout history, Hundreds of religions and philosophies have attempted to help us deal with our suffering. So today I wanted to share with you guys a philosophical school of thought that I have personally found the most success with. It's done so much for my state of mind, my mental health, even my productivity. And I think it's so great that I wanted to have an episode about it in my media library. Let's talk about Stoicism. The ancient Greeks gave us a gold mine of practical information about how to lead a good life that still rings true here in the 21st century. But just as a quick qualifier before we get into this, this philosophy isn't for everyone. It won't fix all of your problems, (laughs) and you may even find parts of it enraging. But fortunately, the Stoics welcomed critique, and they even offered us some ideas to deal with anger, too. Joining me today is Dr. William B. Irvine. I found his books one rainy night at a bookstore in Philadelphia, and I've been a fan ever since. He's a professor of philosophy at Wright State University and a practicing Stoic. Bill talks about Stoicism in a way that I find very accessible. You know, a lot of philosophy text isn't super digestible, but his are, so his books are a great entry point to the topic. I hope you enjoy our conversation. When I first saw my therapist that I was interested in Stoicism, she was immediately, you know, kind of critical of it. And I later learned that it's because she thought I meant being literally Stoic, you know, unfeeling and emotionless.
0: The, The immediate assumption is that I'm going to be the kind of person who just pushes down emotions, represses them, and just grimly stands there and takes what life throws at him and somehow derives some kind of satisfaction from doing that. So in my book, Guide to the Good Life, I distinguish between what I call uppercase S-Stoicism and lowercase S-Stoicism. The lowercase S-Stoicism is what you find in the dictionary, and it is the person who is stoical in the sense that he doesn't respond emotionally to to life. He just grimly bears what he experiences. Uppercase S-Stoicism refers to the philosophy for living uh, Described by the ancient uh, Stoic uh, philosophers, hence uppercase S. And um, they had a very curious kind of reaction to emotion. They said uh, what we should be opposed to is negative emotions. Emotions like anger and fear and anxiety and regret. Envy. Envy is one of my favorite negative emotions because it it plays a very subtle role in... um, In the human experience. So they were opposed to the negative emotions. And then here's the brilliant thing. They didn't suppress them. They came up with a strategy for preventing them from happening in the first place. Uh, So that's brilliant. But they weren't. They were anti-negative emotion, but they weren't anti-emotion. In particular, they they were perfectly fine with positive emotions. Uh, Positive emotions including feelings of delight. And these are these little bursts of delight at, at the little treats that life has to offer you. They, uh, were, uh, they embraced joy when it came. Uh, they were interested in developing their sense of awe and their sense of wonder about the world around them. Because if you have developed that sense, you can take uh, a walk outside, see a tree, and the tree has bark and you can look at the bark, and it's just amazing. And you know, the different kinds of tree have different kinds of bark, and, uh, and you can be blown away by that, or you can not even see the tree, which is what a lot of people um, end up doing. Um, so they embraced positive emotions and came up with strategies for increasing the number of positive emotions you uh, experience. So the interesting thing is when you read uh, descriptions of the ancient Stoics, they don't come off as these gl- gloomy, glum, emotionless beings, but they turn out to be kind of happy, kind of upbeat, uh, c- kind of chipper, kind of finding the silver linings in all sorts of clouds. Uh, and that, to me, that sounds like a, a pretty good way to be. And If you look at your your ordinary day-to-day life, what you'll realize is that... You know things will be going along pretty good, and then you'll have something bad will happen. And uh, sometimes instead of just letting go and moving on, it wrecks the rest of your day. And um, so you can go through life with that uh, kind of situation, or you can, or you can come up with a plan B. And it turned out that. The Stoics and the Zen Buddhists agreed on the goal in living, but they had different ways of achieving that goal. Uh, Stoics um, came up with psychological techniques, and, and we can be discussing them uh, here today. They came up with what now look like brilliant psychological techniques. Uh, uh, the Zen Buddhists were much bigger on, uh, on meditation, Uh, and mindfulness training. And then the other thing that was impressive is that um, uh, Stoicism had a much lower entry fee. On a three-day weekend, you can uh, learn enough about Stoicism that you can figure out whether it's going to make a difference in your life or not. Whereas, to become a Zen Buddhist, you might meditate for years or even decades waiting for your moment of enlightenment to come. It could come tomorrow, and it could never come.
1: It's actually pretty interesting that you say uh, Zen Buddhism led you to Stoicism, because that's how I found it as well. You know, I was kind of looking into some of these ideas. And I think that one of the through lines, the biggest through lines between the two, is the sort of idea of accepting things as they are, surrendering the resistance that we hold every day so let's start there
0: uh, i think accepting is not quite the right word it's embracing which has a different feeling all all together. so it's not a, and again it isn't it isn't a grim thing at all so uh, a one illustration if uh the, those of you who can see this on video i'm pointing to my ear it's bandaged because yesterday i had a minor uh little surgery skin surgery done uh, on my ear and it's an interesting thing because uh, it's the sort of situation that can be a low point in your day, and you can complain about it, uh, uh, or you can embrace the experience. And I did my best to embrace uh, the experience. Uh, and what does that mean? Uh, you you frame it. You know, you you may not have a choice about what grows on your skin and what doesn't, but you you can frame it. So I decided to milk this for. Uh, for the comedy value that it had. Uh, and while they were uh, operating on me, I was still awake. My uh, ear was uh, quite anesthetized, but I was still awake. And uh, I was doing my best to crack jokes. Some of them were even laughed at, and that's a good thing, I guess. And from my point of view, this whole thing about how I behaved, uh, you know, when, when uh, this uh, surgery was done, it's just practice, because uh, I suspect someday life will present me with a very big challenge. If nothing else, my own death will be a challenge. And by practicing, I'll be ready for it. And, um, you know, we talk about Stoics who, who uh, not only died bravely, but, uh, you know, people like Seneca the Stoic, uh, it was, uh, he, he could <laughs> either be killed or commit suicide. And so he decided he was going to commit suicide. And on the appointed day, Um, family members and friends had gathered to be there with him at his death. And he spent the time cheering them up, right? Not bemoaning his fate, but cheering them up. So life can throw you some really brutal curveballs. What are you going to do with them? What are you going to do with them? And the Stoic uh, is going to say, to the extent possible, you're going to hit them out of the park,
1: You also talk about how embracing things that you can't control applies to how other people see you. Um, We have very little control over how others perceive us. And so you argue that we shouldn't seek their approval at all. But how do we go about actually doing that? I think that it's easy to acknowledge this kind of stuff in the abstract. But in practice, it's something that a lot of people find challenging especially you know these days with social media where we can now quantify social approval every second of the day
0: social media i try to stay off of to the extent possible i've been told by people who know better that i could increase my audience by going on social media and so on but i think it can also have a profound effect on a person's life choices. And the problem is you've just got this a dopamine slot machine uh, in your pocket there. Uh, and, you know, it'll tell you, ooh, they like me. And then what you do is you start living your life so that they will like you. And who are these people? Uh, in most cases, they're complete strangers. And uh, if a lot of them like you, that that, that feels uh, that feels very good. And yet, if you do that, you're letting those people decide how you live your life. You're going to live it in accordance with what they, with what they like, which is one way to live. And I know I'm in a minority even talking in this way. is more evidence that I'm an old man, right, that I would uh, even have these thoughts. Um, so, first of all, as a practicing Stoic, I do not regard myself as a paragon of knowledge. Uh, I'm always seeking mentors. Uh, and usually I refer to them as selected, uh, selective mentors. These are people who know a whole bunch about something. And when I encounter such a person, I will just simply go into learning mode. I'll ask questions. I'll ask for the reasons for the answers given. My job is not to challenge them. My job is not to show them that I'm smarter than they are when I know I'm not. My job is to learn from them. Um, There would be a second group of people that I would refer to, this is a little bit snarky, but they are anti-mentors. And that is, if they approve of something that I'm doing, I should think twice about whether to do it or not. Um, Because uh, in their own lives, they've given evidence that there's all sorts of, of internal commotion Uh, They aren't necessarily happy. Uh, They're dissatisfied with a number of things. And that is precisely what I want to avoid in my own uh, existence. And, you know, reading the uh, Stoic philosophers, the ancient Stoics, they wrote 2,000 years ago. And yet what they say still rings true.
1: The takeaway about being on social media, there isn't really any distinction between the types of feedback that you're getting from people.
0: Right. Right. And um, the other thing is there ha- uh, you know, and this is more geezer talk, but uh, um, in in the last two decades, there has been a very interesting change in the way people react to each other socially. Uh, so there, the, the sense of civility is now something that has passed. in the university I teach at. Um, We used to be very civil, you know, collegial to each other. And then uh, along came the Internet, and along came email, and along came listservs. So there was this faculty listserv, which in its earliest days, I was there back then, uh, in its earliest days, um, you know, it was people having reasoned arguments and presenting evidence, and it very quickly, this is among faculty members, devolved into Name calling, and these are people whose office you know is just down the hall from where they are, and they're going to run into them. It just unleashes this this um, this really scary side of uh, of of human beings, where um, the hate comes out, the anger comes out, the issues come out. Uh, uh, your neighbor, if you have if you live next door to somebody, you know what? My advice is be nice to them because there's a good chance that they're gonna be there for a long time and you want to be their friend. Uh, but on the internet, there are no neighbors.
1: You can just block them.
0: Yeah, if you if you want to.
1: Something you had sort of alluded to in our initial emails was about the nature of victimhood. There are, let's say, you know, certain subcultures where there's almost a sort of currency in being a victim. Some might even argue that victimhood carries a type of power with it, at least, you know, online and in in some spaces. And so I worry sometimes that we might find ourselves fixating on the various ways in which we are victims of a cruel world. A victimhood that's real, but the fixation on it um, can be to our own detriment. Can you talk a little bit more about this phenomenon and you know maybe what a stoic approach might be?
0: Yeah, and there is discrimination. There is still discrimination. Uh, nothing like the level at which it used to exist. I mean, if you go back to uh, Mississippi... Uh, in 1960, or more dramatically, Mississippi in 1860. Uh, so anybody who who is is the target of discrimination has this interesting choice: they can play the role of target, or they can play the role of of uh, victim. I think that there's an increased tendency for people to play the role of victim, and uh, to let people know how badly they've been hurt by this and how they've suffered emotionally. Uh, and uh that is one thing you can do but there is an alternative and and this is the, the beautiful thing is there is an alternative so the people who are discriminating against you are um, idiots they're bigots they're hateful and you know what they want to wreck your day and if they succeed they're they're happy about that another way to think about it is if martin luther king had chosen to play the role of victim rather than the role of target. He chose to play the role of target, and he refused to play the role of victim. And if he had played the role of victim, it's unlikely that the civil rights movement would have gotten the mileage that it got. He rose to the challenge. He rose courageously to the challenge. And so the interesting question is, if people today followed that pattern, Maybe uh, they would be doing themselves, and certainly they would be doing themselves personally, but might also be doing their cause a a big favor. And our psychological state has a huge impact on how things feel to us. So if you find yourself seeking pity, that's a bad sign. Uh, If you say to yourself instead, I'm challenged, but I'm going to rise to this challenge, that's a growth mentality.
1: In some ways, I think Stoicism might read as being a little bit at odds with social change movements. Um, Part of the pursuit of justice is not just embracing what's happening, you know, embracing your reality. It's rejecting the status quo. It's resisting it, which sounds like maybe the opposite of what the Stoics would advise us to do. So are these uh, goals at odds? Can, can, stoicism, can, can stoicism coexist with the fight for social change? And if so, how?
0: Yeah, I would uh, argue, uh, and Epictetus, the Stoic philosopher, I think would agree with me on this, that your fight for social change will be more efficient if you play the role of target rather than the role of victim, because you'll have more energy that you can use in a, in a suitable uh, kind of manner. Uh, Epictetus um, started out life in a difficult uh, way. Was he the object of discrimination? Yes, he was a slave, in fact. And because he upset his master, uh, his slave beat him uh, so badly that he was lame for life. What rescued him? What what made him prosper? Why are we talking about him now 2,000 years ago? Because he rose to the challenge. So, uh, you know, there is a lot of public display of anguish that, that seems to be... Uh, uh, a, a kind of standard way for some people to respond to what, uh, what happens. Uh, you know, and it's, it's playing in a very public way the role of victim. Look, I've been hurt. I've been victimized. Um, that isn't good for you psychologically, the Stoics would say. And if your goal is to change society it's probably uh, not a good way to expend your, uh, your energy. Uh, and I know I'm at odds with current trends in having such thoughts even and expressing them, but I'm, I'm pretty much convinced that if you want to change things, then you bravely rise to the challenges. And there have been people throughout history that have done so, and we remember them because they did make a difference.
1: Your, your thoughts on this are unconventional maybe for the times, but I think it's important to think critically about anger, about the public expression of anger that seems to have gripped all of our conversation about things that matter. And I think there is a place for anger. Anger is a justice emotion. It's something we feel when something isn't fair. So I can't fault people for feeling that. And I certainly felt that. I, I mean, I felt a lot more angry <laughs> when I was younger. Um, I still feel angry sometimes, but I feel like I channel it in a different way, and I'm, you know, much less angry on the whole, largely because of my commitment to sort of examining my anger. Um, in some of the things you're saying, you know, anger burns you out, it exhausts you, it takes a lot out of you, it, it makes things feel more hopeless, I guess. And so we get to choose what we do with our anger, how we channel it, and I think there are probably more positive ways to channel righteous anger than say being mad online, but that's just me. I don't use social media much anymore either for, for some of those same reasons.
0: Uh, I, despite my more than decade of stoic practice, I'm still possible. I'm still perfectly capable of lying awake at night angry over some stupid thing that happened years ago. And that's because I'm a human being. That just means I'm a human being. That's um, the way uh, that we're wired. Um, the interesting stoic insight there was uh, they were very uh, cautious about anger. Seneca has a one of his longest essays is an essay on on anger and on the the harm it does to human beings and the harm it does to societies and we go to war and we kill each other. Uh, the psychological insight was um, anger is this sneaky um, emotion. Uh, that uh, it starts out as just a little spark and then the, the, the key thing to dealing with it is don't let it go into a flame. So what we do, you know, we've got these deep inner portions of our brain, this reptilian portion and this mammalian portion, and they're still with us. And so the idea is not just to, um, to stop them from acting, but to harness the energy they have and use it on our behalf. Uh, and it does work. It is effective. And it's, it's this whole question of framing something. So it's not the question, am I going to frame myself as a victim or a target? But am I going to frame this as a kind of a game uh, where I'm being challenged? I'm being tested. And am I going to rise to the challenge and pass the test? And it just refocuses your thinking in a wonderful way.
1: Absolutely. That is a beautiful transition to the next topic I wanted to talk to you about, which is dealing with setbacks in life. One of my favorite tools that you've written about is the stoic test strategy. It's basically a way of reframing our problems so that they become more manageable and we actually have a higher chance of success with those problems. You talk at length in the stoic challenge about how to deal with the setbacks. Would you mind you know, talking about some of your favorite frameworks for that?
0: So we've already talked about some of them. We've talked about the victim versus target one. We've talked about um, the comedic frame. So you take something that happened to you and you turn it into a, a joke. Uh, That requires a little bit of uh, skill, you got to be a little bit quick on your feet, but it's uh, highly effective if you can do it. Another frame is this whole thing, you you regard it as a test, and you're being tested by these imaginary stoic gods. They're like tough coaches, and what they want to do is make you strong and resilient. And how do they do that? By giving you these little challenges, these little setbacks in daily life. So you'll be ready when the big challenges uh, do come. Uh, one more I'll, 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 uh, I'll throw into the pile here is the storytelling um, uh, frame, where you imagine um, what you're doing at, at a given moment in time. You put yourself in uh, into the frame of mind. You think about what I want to be doing right now is I want to be doing something that in the future I'll be able to tell a story, the story of what I was doing. Now, the story you tell in the future can't be uh, can't be uh, nonfiction. It has to be true. You know, as true as the day is long. My uh, my wife and I, one of the things we we took up uh, during. Uh, lockdown period, is we, we got bicycles and started uh, taking long bike rides, and there are all these wonderful paths near where I lived, and they've, I've been oblivious to them as we started doing that. And so uh, we'd be rolling along, and I would start talking about the present moment as if it were in the past tense, Remember that Sunday morning, it was a crack of dawn, and we went out on that ride, and we went through that hayfield, and, you know, we, the hayfield's there around us. Remember how it smelled? And, you know, it's a strange little technique, and yet it has, it has the ability to transform what would just be an ordinary moment of life into something very special. And the other thing is, there will come a time if I live long enough, when I will look back to that very moment, you know, because I'll be even older than I am and I'll be bedridden, I'll be whatever. And I'll think, wasn't that wonderful that I got to have that moment in in life? Uh, The thing is to realize that while you're having the moment, you don't have to wait decades before you realize that, we're biologically programmed to live in the past, that's part of what anger is about, and to live in the future, that's part of what anxiety is about. And as a result, we find it very difficult to live in the present moment. But if we did, we'll realize there's so much that's delightful so much that's absolutely awesome
1: major overlaps with zen buddhism too um being present in the moment and that's what meditation is about just being here right now um i think of the story of telling frame like your life is a movie or a comedy show or something and this is something that helps me out a lot so I think of my life as a sitcom. You know, the bad things that happen are... Sometimes you just have to laugh because it's just so crazy. Especially this year. (laughs) It's just so crazy. And I think that it's really ripe for thinking of it as sort of life's comedy. Um, This is my story. So how do I want my story to end? How do I want it to be told? What kind of person do I want to be in that story? So... One of the hardest universal setbacks that we all experience at some point or another is grief. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the stoic approach to grief and how this tool, negative visualization, might help us to become stronger before experiencing grief.
0: Yeah, uh, grief is a very interesting uh, emotion because it's a mix of a whole bunch of other uh, emotions. It's this toxic stew of negative emotions. Um, So uh, one of them is this sense of regret. Uh, One of the reasons we grieve is because it makes us aware that we were taking something for granted. And so while we could have taken advantage of it, we didn't. And now that it's gone, now we're kind of angry about that. Another uh, aspect of, of grief is simple feelings of helplessness. Um, so when, um, if you have a relative who's old and and passing away, uh, one, one of the things is just, uh, there was so little I could do. So a stoic response to that is, you know what, uh, when someone's alive, take full advantage of the relationship. And I don't mean take advantage of it in one sense, but embrace it, enjoy it. Uh, and so, uh, one, one, trick, one little psychological trick that can help you do that is what the Stoics call negative visualization. So take somebody who's very important in your uh, life and, um, for a flickering instant, I don't know, maybe for three seconds, uh, actively visualize that they cease to be part of your life. So if it's a relationship, you know, relationships end, friendships break up, uh, people move away, um, uh, uh, people die all sorts of things can happen so take somebody who's important in your life a relationship that you value it can be your kids it can be your parents and give yourself a few seconds to just visualize them disappearing from your life okay now get back with life cuz one thing you don't want to do is dwell on that cuz that would be a recipe for a miserable existence you but you do want to allow yourself to consider that Because if you do that, you'll notice a very interesting thing, and that is next time you encounter that person, you're going to be happy.
1: There's a lot of research about the positive mental health effects of gratitude, reflecting on the things we're grateful for. You know, every day doing a little meditation. Another interesting Zen-Buddhism overlap there, too. Um, One of the things that I thought was kind of quirky that you had written about is the five stages of grief. And the Stoic response would be to go to the last stage of grief. Which is acceptance, right?
0: Yeah. No. Uh, now I'm I'm going to blank on the author who did this, but this was a book that became a really big uh, seller back in Kubler the. 19- Ross. Kubler, Kubler Ross. Kubler Ross. Okay, who had five stages of grief, and she said you needed to work your your way through these five stage stages, and one was the first one was denial, I think, and you go through the uh, stages and finally get to acceptance. That sounds like a recipe for months of of uh, of misery. So uh, so. Uh, Cut to the chase. Accept. Accept. And you know what? Um, If one of the things that makes, so for instance, when somebody dies, it makes it so bad is, is this sense of regret in the sense that, gosh, I had my chance and I blew it. Uh, so one of the things you can do is while they are still available, you just make the most. You milk that relationship for all it's worth. And I don't mean in financial or other purposes, but you just, whatever it is that they give you socially, you you just absorb that like a sponge. Uh, so there have been many uh, people who have been quite meaningful to me um, who have passed away. And, uh, and yet I, I've never shed a lot of tears. And then the question is, uh, is that some kind of defect in me? Should I be shedding tears? Um, there was also there's, there's this kind of curious, it, it seems paradoxical, but because I appreciated the relationship so much that when and, and because I knew that the relationship would end, that when it did end, it was not cause for grief. There's moments of grief, so that Seneca points that out. That means you're human. Once again, that's evidence that you're a human being. But an extended uh, series of, of session of grief, that's evidence. You know, again, it's a complex emotion, but one of the things you're doing is you're kicking yourself. You know what? When that person was alive, I could have done a lot more for and with them, and I didn't.
1: Yeah, this this goes back to what you were saying about stoicism being a way to prevent emotional setbacks um so i think some people might find this a little brash or something but i still think it's sort of an interesting approach i think the five stages have kind of been accepted as a fact by some people and there's certainly room to probe and question that you know what the nature of grief is
0: yeah they actually aren't a fact i don't think if you look up they they were a a fad maybe but i don't think there's a whole lot of uh of psychological research that has um backed it up. But if if you're a therapist, then, you know, saying, you know what, I need to walk you through the five stages and you need to pay me while I'm doing that. You can sort of see maybe there's a a conflict of interest.
1: Yeah, I'd like to think that most therapists are not self-interested overtly. You know, we're all self-interested to some degree. But I like to think that they're doing what they can with what they have.
0: Hey, guess what? There are some Stoics who are, are self-interested too. So I'm not sort of saying we're all, we're all, we're all human. Uh, and, and, and the interesting thing is, so Stoics, it isn't, hey, if, um, if you're in tough shape, we can help you. It's uh, we can help you prevent. We can help prevent you from ending up in tough shape. Now it's going to require some effort on your part. It's going to require some training on your part. Uh, It's going to require some experience of setbacks on your part, but we can toughen you up. So when life throws something at you, you're going to be ready for it.
1: Yeah. And I think this bit is intuitively true. You know, we get stronger Um, and the problems that we can deal with now are, are much more complex than we were kids. So I wanted to talk a bit about wanting what you have. This is another powerful concept in your book. Um, sort of a derivative of the discipline of desire, as I understand. And this can apply not only to our emotional wants. You talked a bit about the frustrating situations, the health problems, um, but also our material wants.
0: Yeah. Uh, So most people are on a hedonic treadmill. So psychologists have thought about this for a long time, and that's the name they've given to it. So you know how a treadmill works. You get on there and you start walking, and you're no closer to the top of the treadmill than you were you started walking Um, so it's an endless hike to nowhere a hedonic treadmill uh, is this phenomenon where we think that the way to become happy is to get what we want so we discover in ourselves a desire and the interesting thing is many times we don't choose our desires we discover them so if you've ever fallen in love you know you don't wake up one morning and think "Hmm, today i have some free time think i'll fall in love doesn't work that way uh it, you discover that you've fallen in love and oh the other thing is you don't get to 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 choose who you fall in love with you discover that as well so that's one example but there are other materialistic desires that you uh, discover in yourself like you suddenly want a new uh, kind of car that you've heard about, or you suddenly want uh, a new tech gadget that you've heard about, and so you go in pursuit of it, maybe work very hard to get it, maybe make sacrifices to get it, maybe run up your credit card bill to get it, and then you get it, and what happens? Ah, you're happy, and then you start taking it for granted, then you're right back to where you were before feeling dissatisfied with the world around you, but wait, there on the horizon is another consumer purchase that I can make, and if only I do that, I'll be happy. So we've got people chasing mirages, you know, the perfect desert mirage, you're there in the desert, you're you're thirsty as can be, and off in the distance, there's what looks like a pool of water, and you go walking across the hot desert, and you get there, and it disappears, and that's how... um, That's how the things that we think are going to make us happy are. So the trick is, instead of going through life, forming new desires and then chasing them, figure out how to like the things you've already got, appreciate them, savor them, embrace them. And one way you can bring yourself to that state of mind is through the negative visualization that we were just talking about. Uh, Same thing with relationships. You know, you can always be in pursuit of the perfect relationship. And that's one way to spend your energy. Uh, The other way is to, number one, pick wisely. (laughs) And number two is invest your energy into making the relationship work. Uh, The perfect relationship is one in which both parties are trying to give the other member of the relationship 110% of what they give. That's heaven. That's as close as you're going to get to heaven on earth. Uh, the worst is if one side's giving 110%, the other side's giving 90 right? And then you have this uh, this kind of asymmetry.
1: Right. I think it's very useful to think of our relationships as something that we get to choose every day. I believe his name is Alain de Botton. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, he talks a lot about how we need to accept that our partners are going to be flawed and that all of us are hard to live with. You know, we're all kind of a pain in the ass in our own ways. And part of finding peace and, and happiness in our relationships is accepting that. So how do we go about doing that?
0: So two factors. I mean, number one is, is just this notion of trying to give more than you get. Uh, the second thing and it's only recently that I've become aware of this, is the importance of communication, Uh, you know, of uh, two people talking past each other. Yes, they're both speaking English, but there's no actual communication going on. The whole notion of conversation, that what we regard as conversation consists on me patiently waiting until you stop talking. Don't take this personally, and I'm not doing it right now, all right? But me waiting until you stop talking so I can reveal to you what the truth of the matter is. And while I'm doing that, then you go into the opposite thing. You just say, well, soon he'll stop talking. And so I'll tell him what the truth of the matter is. Another thing about Stoicism is, you know, this whole notion of not valuing so highly what other people think of you. Uh, The whole notion of trying to get beyond your own ego is a factor there. But another thing is, uh, you know what? If you encounter somebody and you just ask them sensible questions and listen to them, you'll learn some wonderful things. But for them, it'll be a breakthrough. It can be a breakthrough experience. Here's another human being actually listening to what I have to say who actually sounds like they're interested in the life I'm living, uh, it is surprisingly easy to make somebody else's day. What do you do? You just listen. You let them, you let them tell their story, and you listen carefully to the story. You know, instead of saying, "Well, my story is better than yours," so let me tell you my story. You just listen. You can make somebody's day. So my new motto is: If you can make somebody's day, do it. And uh, you know that whole notion. That one of the things I'm supposed to do in relationships is, is exhibit my superiority in whatever aspect you want to, to measure. Uh, that's gone. Largely gone. Not entirely gone. Uh, and once that goes, uh, you know, I found myself lately and this is something that I never thought I could do. And that is chatting up complete strangers.
1: There's a spirit of curiosity there about other people. And I think part of really cultivating that in our lives, as you mentioned, is that we have to overcome our egos in some ways to put aside our own importance, our own voices, our own inner narratives, to actually really be able to tune into what's going on around us.
0: There's an element of being secure, self-secure. Yeah. And there's, yeah. there's an element of uh, embracing the life you happen to be living. You know, not yeah. feeling like I'm in competition with everybody else. Well, you know what? They've got their lives. I got my life. Whoa, let me see what I can do with my life. Let me see how much joy I can extract from this life that I find myself living. And that's a a stoic uh, approach.
1: Well, the last little bit I wanted to talk to you about here is embracing our failures. Um, To aid our journey, to become more resilient, you encourage us to embark on a stoic adventure. Can you talk about that?
0: Uh, So one of the things you're going to do as a practicing stoic is you're going to do things that are hard to do just so you can experience setbacks just so you can develop your ability to overcome those setbacks and keep your cool while you do it. So it's both kind of gaining uh, competence and it's gaining confidence Mm -hmm. and it's learning how to go through life setbacks uh, and keep your cool uh, along the way. Uh, One reason uh, people don't do difficult things is because there's the possibility of failure. If you actually inquire, if you look into the lives of highly successful people, one of the things that makes them stand out is how extensively they've failed. They've experienced multiple failures. How come? Because they tried something hard to do. If you try something hard to do, there's a really good chance you're going to fail. What makes them special, too, is that they bounced. They didn't break. They were resilient. They bounced back. So they said, oh, I just failed. Let's see, what can I learn from that? Uh, the big thing uh, that you don't want to do is keep making the same mistake over and over and over and uh, go on and make new different mistakes, make better mistakes. <laughs> um, so um, uh, to call something a failure, uh, well, that's a, a, a question of framing. So I describe uh, at one point uh, a tennis match. So there's a part of tennis that you can control and the part you can't control. What can you control? You can control how hard you train. You can control the strategy you have. You can control the way you um, change that strategy in response to what the other side is doing. Um, Can you control winning the game? No, they just might be better than you are. Uh, So suppose you lose the game. Does that mean you failed? No. Well, in one sense it does, but that's not the sense that matters. Did you do the best you could given the resources available to you? And if the answer is yes, then that's success. That's stoic success. Um, and you know what? You're going to walk away feeling good about yourself. You're not going to be saying, Joe, I lost the match. You're going to be saying, you know what? I, that was a challenge. And I rose to that challenge.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I, I passed that challenge.
1: Beautiful. Was there anything else you wanted to add that you think is important?
0: Yeah, I don't have any tattoos, but if I did, if I was <laughs> going to get one, uh, the tattoo I'd get. Now, no Stoic, that I know I've said this, but it's, uh, it is a very basic kind of Stoic saying. And it would be, and you can imagine in some kind of fancy script on my bicep or whatever. <laughs> do what you can with what you've got where you are. Do what you can with what you've got where you are. Because that's all you can ever do. And if you do that, you should feel proud that you realize that that's what you needed to do. And you should feel proud that you did it. Whatever the outcome is, hey, that was as good as, as, uh, as it could get. And that's what you did. So congratulate yourself.
1: Those were wise words from Dr. Irvine. Thank you for listening to this episode. I know it's a little bit longer than as usual, but I love this topic. (laughs) I really do. So I hope you enjoyed it as well. You can let me know your thoughts on Twitter, on YouTube, or just an old-fashioned email as well. Talk to you soon, and take care.